You're listening to the Midtown Church Sermon Podcast. Midtown Church is a family compelled by God's love to practice the way of Jesus together in Austin. Our big prayer is this, in Austin as it is in heaven. Learn more at midtownaustin.org. Guys, welcome. My name is Josh Shavaya. I'm the college pastor here. If I haven't had a chance to meet you, thank you for coming today. I'm really excited to be talking to you. Sometimes you spend so much time in a scripture that you don't actually like realize how it might hit people. And so I didn't, you know, Psalm 3, as she's reading it, I'm like, man, that's kind of intense. <laughs> like, break the jaw of my enemy. Yeah, here we are. It's church. Um, <laughs> but we're going to continue our series, The Psalms of Summer. Uh, as Jake has cleverly called it. And um, yeah, it's been really fun to hear from some of the other pastors here at Midtown and what they've gotten out of these different psalms that we've gone over. And psalms is great because psalms really teaches us this language of prayer and all sorts of prayers for all different seasons of life. So things like lament, right? When we're mourning, there's psalms for that. There's psalms of confession when we feel like we've really blown it. Right? And there's psalms of great joy and celebration as well. And so today we're going to look at what does it look like to actually pray through our emotions? Because for many of us, we grew up in houses and we all have emotions and we all deal with them. But we might have grown up in houses that treated them in really kind of two polar opposite ways. For some of us, we grew up in houses that stuffed emotions. Was any of your houses like, like stuffers of emotions? Raise your hand. Get a, get a feeling. Okay. So a few of you guys... You guys, like, stuffed emotions. We didn't talk about it, right? Like, the, they happened, but they were underneath the surface. And then others of you, like, grew up in houses like mine, where we gave, like, full vent to our emotions. Like, everything was on the table. And the dinner table was loud, and you just got it all out. And it felt great in the moment. Uh, but then you realize there's an incredible amount of damage that comes when you just let emotions fly. And that was my house growing up. And my wife, like, grew up in a, in a house that, like, didn't invent as emotions as much, and I grew up in an opposite, and so you can imagine how that, that went as we were dating. Um, I realized pretty quickly when the other person's not yelling and you are, like, that's not, that's not good. It's not going to lead to good things. Um, and so, uh, so yeah. So, but emotions are something we all have, but we really don't ever learn how to deal with them or process them well. In fact, as a, as a parent, what I've realized is that, you know, really like 50% of my job is like teaching my kids emotional regulation, how to deal and process with their emotions in a healthy way. Because if we don't deal with our emotions, our emotions will eventually deal with us. And so we need to learn how to do this. And in Psalm 3, we see that David really walks through his emotions, and particularly these emotions of fear and, and anxiety. And I know after the last two years with COVID, none of us deal with fear and anxiety, so this is going to be irrelevant to everyone in the room. But no, I'm excited to have this conversation because I think this is something we've all processed through for a long time, and sometimes we just need language to bring to the table to be able to bring out the things that are going on in our heart. And so a few things here I want to deal with is, one, we're going to be talking about fear. So what exactly is fear? Fear is this powerful emotion. In fact, it's one of these core emotions that we all deal with. In fact, it's so powerful that many people use it to control and manipulate others. In fact, it's one of the main things that people use to control and manipulate others, right? Whether that's advertisers or pastors or parents 
or politicians. All of us in these different places of authority will use fear to manipulate and to control. And I could give you plenty of examples, but I might get myself in trouble. So I will not give you any examples of what that looks like. But we also see it in media and advertising as well, right? Like so many different messages about how you are in danger by different things that could occur in your life. And so this is something for us, again, that we see in all facets of life, this idea of fear. And today we're actually going to look at like fear. There's, there's these clear and present dangers in life, but there's also these underlying fears right, that we call anxiety. That there might not be this clear, identifiable source of danger, but there's something lurking beneath the surface, but we can't quite name what it is. And so in Psalm 3, David is going to deal with both of these things, clear and present danger, and all this, also this underlying sense of danger, but he can't, we, we might not be able to clearly identify it right from the get-go. And so I want to dive into Psalm 3 here, uh, verses 1 and 2. Um, well, let me do this before I dive in. I wanna, we're going to look at this story, right, this story of David, we're going to see how he processes emotions, and then we're going to look at it as a model for us to do the same. And so as you're looking at this psalm, there's a few, uh, you know, it was quite jarring when you just read it out loud, but there's a few reasons why it's jarring. And I think as you learn the background of this story in Psalm 3, you can see why this is, uh, you, he uses such jarring language. And so in Psalm 3, um, this is a story, in your Bibles it might say something like, parenthetically, or not parenthetically, italicized, it might say something like, a psalm of David when he fled from his son Absalom. Now, if you ever wondered whether that's like in the Bible or not, that's in the original manuscripts, it is. So how do we know that this is a psalm of David? Well, you'll see the details, and like, they really mirror the other parts of the Bible that talk about this story. But also, like, this is written there in the Psalms, so we know this. This is from David. This is when he, he was fleeing from his son Absalom. And that should be enough for you to know that this is a big deal, right? Like, how many of you, like, your sons went to kill you? Like, probably not many, but, uh, so, but this, is, this is clearly a big deal for David. And so this is the story. You can read it if you want on your own later, but it's 2 Samuel 15 where this story occurs. And so... Um, it's a real-life example for David. It's at the end of his, really, career. So his life has happened. And Absalom has essentially said, all right, I'm going to create this coup, and I'm going to overtake my father. And so I'm going to win over these people by sitting at the city gates and, 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 uh, and introducing myself to people as they come in. And over a period of years, Absalom begins to win the heart of the people. And through winning the heart of the people, he goes, okay, I'm gonna, now I'm going to overturn my father's kingdom. And so he rallies up all these people, 12,000 troops, and he says, okay, we're going to overtake David. And so David essentially is forced to leave Jerusalem, which is the capital that he essentially built. And he's forced to flee into the mountains with a few hundred loyal people. And that's the context that we get into here in Psalm 3, 1 and 2. So the first thing that we see with David is he identifies the source of his fear, and it's pretty obvious here in verses 1 and 2. He says, Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. 
So right away, you see two sources of fear here, right? One is that he has a number of foes. We know from the story, we know from later in this, that it's 12,000 foes that are chasing him, right? But then there's also this message that many are saying about him, including Absalom, his son, and saying God would not deliver him. Or other versions of the scripture say, like, salvation will not come to David. There's no salvation for David with God. And essentially what Absalom's saying here is that God is through with David. His time has come and gone, and God is no longer with him. So he's essentially going out to chase him, right, to kill him, because that's just a simple reflection of what God has already done with David. He said, you're no longer relevant here. And this is different, right? This is, there's a, a, an identifiable source of danger and fear for David, right? Like, my life is on the line. But there's also this other thing. There's these people that are directly attacking his identity, his meaning, his significance. And this is exactly what his enemies are capitalizing on. And essentially, they're saying, who is David now if he's not a successful father and a successful king? Who is he? And these two layers of fear are worth, I think, exploring for us. Because again, there's these two different things going on here. There's fear, this clear and present danger, and then there's this anxiety, this underlying core attack on David's identity. And so um, in the 1960s, there was a major breakthrough in the study of psychology. And there's a guy named Rollo May. Anybody heard of Rollo May? Any psychologists in the room? Okay, a couple of you guys. Um, I did not heard of Rollo May before this talk, and so here we are. But Rollo May actually um, studied fear. That was kind of his primary thing that he was studying as a psychologist. And so he spent some time in um, a mental health institution. And kind of during that time, he realized that fear... It's actually this really complex thing, so he began to study it. And what he found is that there's these different parts of fear, and he actually identified one of them as this term anxiety in 1967. How many of you guys know the term anxiety? Yes. How many of you? No, I'm just kidding. I'm not going to ask that question. Um, but you got, we, now this is a household term, right? But back then, nobody had ever thought of this term anxiety. So Roland May brings us to the table, and he would say this about fear and distinguishing fear from the subcategory of anxiety, that fear is an instinctive response to a clear and a present danger. There's an identifiable source of danger or threat, like 12,000 people running after you to kill you, right? Identifiable source of danger or threat, right? And he says that, that this fear... Identify, like, where there's a clear identifiable source of threat can actually be a really good thing because like, these are the moments where you see that people have this like, superhuman strength and they like, you know, a hundred pound like, dude will just like, lift a car off of like, somebody else and like, kind of like these human, like supernatural human moments in life. That there's adrenaline that rushes you through your body and there's this burst of energy that allows you to do things that you might not normally be able to do. Right? And so I'll give you an example of that in my own life. I remember uh, when my daughter was three, my kids like, loved to go to the pool. We were at the pool yesterday. When I was, my kid was three, my daughter was three, and we were um, living in Florida at the time. so like five or six years ago. Um, we were at the pool, and at, you know, at three she couldn't swim, so she had, usually had floaties on. Well, sometimes when she played on the steps, I would allow her to not wear her floaties in the pool. And so 
we were having one of these days where it was going to be a fight. And so I was not willing to take on the fight of floaties or no floaties. So I said, hey, you cannot wear your floaties. And so she's standing on the, on the steps. And I'm really almost all, all the way across the pole on the other side. And I'm like talking to somebody, but I'm positioned in a way that I can see my kid, right? So you can't fully blame me for what's about to happen. <laughs> but I'm looking out at what's, gonna ha- or at what's going on. And I see her step off of the step into the water. And it's about three feet, and she's like, you know, one foot nothing at the time, um, because all my kids are small like I am. And um, and so I see her step off the step, and immediately, like, I take off and I sprint. And I'm like Usain Bolt, like breaking 100-meter records. And then I turn into, like, Carl Lewis and, like, jump into the pool as, you know, pretty far. And within, like, two or three seconds, I'm there. She jumps off the step, and I see her, right? I I can just see it in my head today. Like, she's like still holding her head above water, like trying to survive, right? And I take off, and I jump in the water, and I grab her, right? But like what happens in that moment, right? I have this clear identifiable source of danger and this burst of adrenaline and energy that like took quite a bit of time to come off of because I was afraid that my daughter was going to die, right? There's a fear, right? We all get this. Um, and then there's this idea of anxiety, Right? And this anxiety, what it does for us is it's really, again, it's like beneath the surface. And if fear is this temporary flood of intensity and energy, then anxiety is this vague feeling of dread and weakness and fragility with no clear identifiable source. So again, I grew up in Florida. I grew up in the lightning capital of the world. So we had storms all the time. If fear is this like lightning storm that comes and goes, then anxiety is like San Francisco, right, where it's just gray all the time, right? It doesn't necessarily storm all the time, but it's kind of misting all the time. It's gray, right? There's this this vagueness, this weakness, this fragility that we feel. In May's worldview, he would say this, anxiety is a fear that renders your life and accomplishments meaningless. He goes on, he's quoted to say this, anxiety is this wear and tear of a thousand little deaths. See, our physical well-being is not at stake with anxiety, but the sense of who we are is. My identity and my story gets called into question through this ongoing sense of weakness and fragility. This is what May calls anxiety. And again, we all have this clear example of fear and anxiety in our life, and it's called COVID, right? We all lived through this pandemic, and we had these moments where we've all known somebody who's died from COVID. We've all had this moment where we might say, man, I'm, like, if I get this, I might die too, right? There's this fear, this clear identifiable source of danger. But then there's this other thing that came along with, with COVID that was a lot slower. And it was this thing called anxiety, right? Where I'm not really sure like, what my life's going to be like after this. Is this ever going to end? Right? As we're going through COVID right, and things are out of lockdown, I know many people that quit their jobs, that changed careers, that are asking this question, who am I? Like, does my life matter? As I'm isolated socially from all these other people, who's texting me, who's not? Like, am I alone? Like, you feel this reality of some of your friendships and go, man, maybe some of these people I was close with, maybe we're not that actually, we're not that close. You begin to question these things deep inside of your soul. That can be just as painful as real death. 
it's called anxiety. And that's what David is going through right here. There's this real physical, clear source of identifiable danger. 12,000 people chasing after me, nothing more clear than that. And then there's this anxiety, like, is God actually through with me? Is what these people are saying about me, is it true? And so he moves on in verses 3 and 4. And he begins to pray through these anxieties and these fears that he's experiencing. He says this. He says, but you, Lord, are a shield around me, my glory, the one who lifts my head high. I call out to the Lord, and he answers me from his holy mountain. And so you see the shift with David here, right? Like, he had just been, like, talking about this clear and present danger, 12,000 people wanting to kill him, and there's no deliverance for him, that all these people are saying this. And he shifts here, and he begins to speak of God and his character in the midst of these circumstances. And he says three things about God here. He says, you are my shield, you are my glory, and you are the one who lifts my head high. And the question for us is, why does David use these three images, right, to talk about about God in this moment, and like, why do these matter to him? And some of these, like, you know, they're, they're Bible words, <laughs> and, um, and some are just really old, like shields. Like, who uses shields today? Um, not many of us. I don't walk around with a shield. I don't see people walking around with shields. Um, but he uses these images, right? And these images matter to David. And so I want to look at these images and why they matter to David and then why they might matter or bring them contextualized to us in our neighborhood in the 21st century. And so the first one, you are my shield. Why does David use this image of a shield? The first thought I think all of us have is like, what does a shield do? It protects you, right? <laughs> like, that makes sense. Cool, we can move on. Okay, uh, no. But if you think about it deeper, like people use shields, why? Well, they use it for protection. But it's not because they don't think like bad things are gonna happen to them right? Like, no, they, they're expecting that this is going to be a bad day, potentially, right? Like, um, so I need a shield to protect me. Now, does a shield prevent bad things from happening? No. They assume that bad things are going to happen, right? But the shield protects particularly the most vulnerable parts of who we are, right? And it keeps, David ultimately keeps him safe. And so he uses this image of God as a shield. And what he's saying here is like, yeah, the situation's bad, but God is my shield. And I think for many of us, we have this view of God, and we have this question of where is God in the most difficult circumstances in my life? And I know I've certainly asked that question. Like when my mom got stage four lung cancer when I was 24 years old. I'm asking God, like, where are you? Because I had grown up with this version of God that essentially if I'm doing all the right things, if I'm reading my Bible, if I'm, you know, representing him in the world, then bad things aren't going to happen to me. It's like this, you know, Christian version of karma, right? Like, if I just do all the right things, you know, nothing's, nothing bad's going to happen to me. And yet if, if you, like, open the scriptures, it's like, Man, at every turn, like at every great moment in the scripture is preceded by these really painful moments. 
right? So the Jewish people are enslaved by Egypt. And that's the context for, like, some of God's greatest work. In the New Testament, you see these disciples, they decide to follow Jesus, and yet it leads to their death in the end. And then ultimately we see with Jesus, right, like his death, right, is the vehicle for which he brings life to the world. And so all of us, we're free to believe in this Christian version of karma God that just like, they were like, hey, like he prevents bad things from happening to us, but that's just not reality, and it's not the God of the scriptures. And I've watched people over and over again walk away from Jesus and walk away from Christianity because they go, God's just not good. It's not that God doesn't exist. It's that he exists and he is not for me. And I think one thing that we need to walk away with from this idea is that, yeah, the assumption of that God is my shield is that bad things happen in life. And yet we can also assume that God is going to protect the most valuable parts of us in the midst of this journey with him. And so for David, we need to ask the question, what are the most valuable parts of who he is? And so he moves on in um, this next section, and he says, he says, hey, you are my glory, right? And, you know, first of all, like, why, why does he say that? Like, why, why in the midst of this, like, 12,000 people coming after him, why is he saying, you are my glory? And I think we need, to, this is a Christian word that we use a lot. We use it to say, oh, like, we must glorify God and all this stuff in out. Uh, I'll stop there. But we talk about glory all the time. But glory has some pretty broad definitions within the scriptures. In fact, I'm not a Hebrew scholar, but this guy Tim Mackey is, and he talks all about glory. And uh, Tim Mackey created the Bible Project podcast. He has a whole uh, podcast on this idea of glory. You should listen to it. It's great. Um, He'll get like 50 minutes on glory. I don't have 50 minutes to give on glory, at least not that you want me to give. Um, But he defines glory, or the scriptures, the Hebrew word glory, is this word kavod. And the word kavod, like, literally means weighty, right? So it refers to, it can be, like, physically, like, a physical weight or appearance. And so in Judges 3, um, there's the story of this guy, Eglon, and he uses, they use the word kavod to explain his kind of physical appearance, that he's weighty. Judges 3, Eglon's story is like super cool. It's like right out of like Game of Thrones or something. You should read it, um, but not right now because I'm speaking. But, but later you should read Judges 3 because it's pretty awesome. Um, but then in other parts, right, like, what, like last week, like um, when, when Jake spoke, he talked about Psalm 8, and in Psalm 8 it says, man, that he, like God, crowned humanity with glory and honor, right? So glory here is like more metaphorical, and this means like weighty or significant or important, where God says, man, humanity is important and significant. And so glory, when you say like, hey, you are my glory, that God, like we're glorifying God, we're just saying, you know, it's just a fancy way of saying, hey, we're giving the importance and value to God that we think that he deserves. Right, that, that's all we're saying. And right here, David says, you are my importance, my significance. You are what makes me important. You are the one that gives me status. And why does David say that? It's because everything in his life that gives him status and significance and meaning has been stripped away. And let's talk about that. What, is, what, what has given David glory and significance? 
I don't know if you guys know the story of David, but he's like the, the ultimate like rags to riches story, right? He is a shepherd boy counted out by his own family, and yet he rises up to become king, right? And when he becomes king, he builds this incredible nation and leads them into their, some of their best years, and he builds this city. Now, I don't even know if you know what it's like to just even try to like build up a company or uh, maybe a family or just a relationship. Like, it's hard to build anything, let alone an entire nation. And David does it, and he does it well. And he builds up this city, Jerusalem, and he brings the tabernacle of God where God resides, and he brings it there, and he puts it on this highest mountain there. He's known as the man that is after God's own heart. Right? This guy has great moral integrity and character at one point. Right? David has all of these things that he can put his glory in, right? his meaning and status and significance. But by the time that Absalom gets to him, if you want to know why saying, Absalom is saying, hey, there's no deliverance for David. God's done with them. Well, he's got to peer into his story a little bit. Like this guy, this is the guy that also peers down off of his high place and sees this woman bathing and goes and sleeps with her, even though she's another man's wife. And then to cover that up, he goes and he has her husband murdered. Right? And then, like, Absalom, like, part of his story is that he kills a brother because that brother had abused a sister in the family. Like, David's family had fallen apart. So any idea that he was a successful father, that he was a successful king, his moral integrity or character, all of that at this point is gone. His son had overthrown him because he said, man, God is done with David. So David said, God, you are my glory because he has nothing else that is giving him significance or status at that time. And we'll get into this a little bit at the end, but for all of us, I think when we're wrestling with this place of, is God done with me? It's usually because we've, play, we've had misplaced kavod, misplaced glory, misplaced significance in some other place. And eventually, all of those things come down at some point. And so, David is at that point, right, where there's nothing left for him. And he acknowledges that God's attention and care is the only thing that matters to him because it's the only thing that he has left. And then he moves on there, and he says, You are my glory. You are the one that lifts my head high. Now, this is the one thing that actually can make sense in our culture today, right? Lift my head high. Like, when you lift your head high, it's because you have confidence, right? And so what David is saying here is, like, you lift my head high, God. You are the one that gives me confidence. It's not my status. It's not what other people say about me. It's not what I have. It's not that I'm a king. It's that you are my glory, you are the one that lifts my head high. You give me confidence. And, you know, you hear him say that, and you go like, <laughs> what is, why should David have any confidence that God would lift his head high? Like, there's nothing in his life, right, that says that God should even pay attention to him, that God shouldn't be through with him. 
And yet David seems really convinced that God is answering him and really convinced that he's his glory and he's a shield. And he does that because of what's here in verse 4. In verse 4, he says this. He says, I call out to the Lord and he answers me from his holy mountain. And his confidence is not in his circumstances, right? It's not that things are going well for David because they're not. His confidence is in that God is answering him from his holy mountain. Or some of your translations might say holy hill. And so where is that? Where, this holy mountain, what is that? Essentially, a, a, you know, a, a term in the scriptures, right, for essentially like the place where uh, the tabernacle is. So uh, David had built up Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, there was this highest mountain, this highest hill, and that's where he put the tabernacle of God. The temple was eventually there. What happens in a temple? Sacrifices are made. And those sacrifices are made because they cover over destructive choices or sin, and it's a place where things are forgiven. And so what David's saying is that, like, hey, God, like, you, like, I have confidence that you answer me because you have forgiven me because you are making a covering for the destructive choices, the sin that I've made in my life. And all of that is looking forward to something, right? That something is Jesus. And Jesus is the one, for us, we look back on the cross, right? Like, David is going to look forward. We look back on it. And we can be confident that, G- that God answers us from his holy mountain because Jesus was a sacrifice for us to cover over our sins, to forgive us. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 5.21, I think I put it up here, it says this, He who had no sin became sin, a sin offering for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see this picture here, right, of the sin offering, right? Jesus... He steps in our place and he takes on the, um, the place in the place of us and he covers over our sins by his life, death, and resurrection. He absorbs into himself what we deserve and in response, he gives us his righteousness or his covering. So when God looks at us, he doesn't see our filth or, or, um, the, or our, our unhealthy choices that we made. He sees his righteousness. He's a covering for us. And we can be confident that God hears us because of the sacrifice that he made for us. And that's what David's getting at here. He says, hey, I'm confident that you are my glory. I'm confident that you are my shield. I'm confident that you are my protection. And I'm confident that you lift my head high because of what you've done, because of what you, who you are and your character And so he's confident that God's his shield, his glory, and, um, and that he can be confident that God's going to answer him. And then what's the result of all this for David? And we see that in verses 5 or 6. He falls asleep. He says, hey. He says, um, in verse 5, he says, I lie down and sleep, and I wake again, because the Lord sustains me. I will not fear, though tens of thousands assail me on every side. Now, I don't know if any of you guys have had moments of just great deep fear and anxiety. But those moments for me keep me up at night. Like I cannot sleep, right? And David here, he falls asleep, right? 
is the Lord sustains him. He's, he's taken his fear and his anxieties and he's placed them onto God. And in return, he said, okay, you are my glory. You are what gives me status and significance. And when he does that, he's putting the gospel into practice and he's able to have peace. And he's able to sleep. And then he moves on here and he says, um, he's able to speak honestly with God, right? And in verses seven and eight, he says this, he says, it says, Arise, Lord, deliver me, my God. Strike all my enemies on the jaw. Break the teeth of the wicked. From the Lord comes deliverance. May your blessing be on your people. Whoa. David, you're kind of crazy, bro. <laughs> like, smite my enemies, is essentially what he says, right? And what's interesting here is that, like, what we see is that David is really honest with God, right? Like, here's these people that are, like, pursuing him, and he wants something done about it, Right? And so this isn't about, like, faking it till you make it. Like, this isn't about, like, just saying, like, oh, like, God, we're cool and everything's okay. No, he's cool with you being honest with him. But if you see in his honesty, he, he's leaving these things up to God. He's not saying, hey, God, I'm going to go strike my enemies. He says, hey, God, you take care of me. You deliver me. He's trusting God with the results of this. Even if he dies, he's trusting God. And he's put his full weight on God in this moment. And I think, you know, for us, I think this is an invitation to do the same. One, to speak honestly to God, but also to be able to trust him in the midst of all of this. And in the end, in this story, um, in 2 in Samuel, we learn that Absalom um, dies in the midst of kind of this whole deal that's going on between the two. And I'll let you read that story later because it's also pretty cr crazy. And David doesn't lift a finger on Absalom. And yet God takes care of it and, and, um, and defeats Absalom in this, in this process. And for me, like this prayer um, and this whole journey that, 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 that David has here with God is, is incredible. And I think for us, it can teach us so many different things. And so I want to have a few questions for you as we enter into a time of communion um, and in a time of worship through singing. I, wanna, um, I want you to really reflect on your own life and your own fears and anxieties. And so I have a few questions for you guys that you guys can wrestle through here. The first question is this. How many of you have a clear, identifiable source of fear right now? Like, is there a person? Is there a relationship? Is there a situation? That causes you deep fear. For others of us, like we might have something uh, that we need to identify um, that's going on deep down inside of us with this fear. It might, might take, for some of us, it's quite obvious, right? We have something that really comes to mind, but for others of us, you might really need to sit with this and wrestle with, like, man, do I have these fears and how are they controlling me? And yet, for others of us, um, the question is, what are the anxieties that I'm living with? And we all have these things that make us anxious in life. What are these things in our life, like Rolla May says, that are kind of these thousands and thousands of little deaths, or death by a thousand little cuts? 
What are these things that really cause us anxiety? To really ask the question, or that causes the question, like, who am I? Am I valuable? Like, do people care about me? And I think for some of us, like some of our anxieties come from this idea of misplaced identity or misplaced kavod, misplaced glory. And so some of us are putting our identity in things like I am what I do, right? Our work, our accomplishments, our, our school, right? We all have these different things that we put our identity in. For, us, for others of us, it's the stuff that we have. It's where we live. Um, it's what we have. It's the cars that we drive. For others of us, it's what others say about us. It's our status, right? It's if people speak well of us. It's if I have this relationship. It's popularity. And so for all of us, we have these different areas of life that we tend to find our identity, our status, our significance in. And these things aren't bad things. They're just really bad gods. Because eventually... For all of us, these things will fail us. And when they do, what are we left with? And so for us this morning, as we take communion, it's this invitation to put God back in his rightful place in our life and put Jesus in his rightful place and say, hey, you are my shield. You are my protection. You are my glory. You are what gives me significance and status. You are what gives me confidence, not what I do not what I have, not what people say about me, but it's you. And it's this invitation to experience the peace that God has for us when we put our, the weight of our life onto him. Thank you for listening to the Midtown Church Sermon Podcast. We invite you to practice the way of Jesus in Austin with us because as we become more like Jesus, Austin will become more like heaven. Thank you.